Hello and welcome to the Disability Education and Society podcast. This is a podcast for collective learning and unlearning in the struggle for intersectional liberation. We focus on educational realms expanding to other societal areas. We share our stories as academics as well as those of our featured guests, including disability activists involved with multifaceted dimensions of systems equity, self-determination efforts, anti-ableist, and anti-racist liberation. Join us as co-conspirators. Today's episode features Dr. Lisette E. Torres-Gerald. Dr. Torres-Gerald is a trained scientist and disabled scholar activist who is a senior researcher at TURC, a nonprofit made up of teams of math and science education and research experts. She is also the director of operations and communication for the new national NSF AISL Equity Resource Center called the Reimagining Equity and Values in Informal STEM Education, or REVISE, Center. Dr. Torres Gerald has a doctorate with a certificate in social justice from the School of Education at Iowa State University and a master's in zoology with a certificate in ecology from Miami University. Her academic research focuses on addressing racialized gender justice and disability in science and higher education. She is an active member of the Science for the People, a co-finder of Signs of Disability, Dismantling Ableism in Mathematics and Beyond, and a co-founder and former executive board member of the National Coalition for Latinxes with Disabilities, or CNLD. Dr. Torres Gerald is also an advisory board member of Science Friday's Breakthrough Dialogues program and the Invisible Disability Project, IDP. Lastly, she has been identified as an AERA Spencer Foundation Early Career Scholar and a Kavli Foundation sponsored network leader for inclusive science communication. Well, thank you so much, Lisette, for joining us today on the Disability Education and Society podcast. We are thrilled to have you because you do so much. I'm still learning uh, so much about you, even though I, you and I have worked together before. Uh, yeah. There's so much more to you, of course, than, than that uh, small interaction. And so we are both, Alexis and I, are, are just, just so happy to have you here and to have this conversation with you today. And so uh, we would like you, Lisette, to start by uh, having you share a personal story related to your disability journey. Sure. Um, so my disability journey certainly started later <laughs> compared to other folks I know. Um, I have an acquired disability called fibromyalgia, which is more well what they're finding is it's it's akin to what's being called long covid now but a very a lot of similar symptoms but essentially fibromyalgia is a um, neuromuscular condition that impacts my understanding is that it impacts how um my neurons essentially talk to the rest of my body and so that there's like a disconnect that causes me to feel pain all the time um, at different levels a pain that is whole body and travel from place to place um, varies with really weird things like pressure systems and temperature and comes with fatigue um, and there is no cure so at least not at this point. Um, <clears throat> so I was diagnosed in 2015, which was two years after the birth of my first child, uh, my son. Um, but the symptoms actually happened after, right after the birth of my son. So um, my my birth story was not ideal. Um, I had a C-section um, and 
part of me thinks that my experience of the birthing process triggered something that was genetically dormant in my body. And this is just me hypothesizing. Um, Because my sisters, who are 10 and 9 years older than me, also have fibromyalgia. Um, One did not have children. The other does have children. So all three of us have it, but there's like no other connection aside from that we're related. Um, So going back to the birth story, they were prepping me for my C-section and inserting, oh, now my, (laughs) now my brain's going to start to make up words. Um, They were inserting my, um, the anesthesia that numbs you through my spine. And uh, the doctor kept hitting my spine, (laughs) which was very, very painful. And he would keep asking, you know, is it okay? Is it okay? And I'm like, no, I'm in pain. <laughs> um, but finally he worked it out. Then C-section time came. And when they removed my son, uh, I could feel a flood of really hot blood go into my chest. Um, and it it's the worst pain ever. I I don't even know how to describe it, but it's incredibly painful. And so I had to ask the same anesthesiologist to give me medication uh, for that to reduce the pain to the point where when they gave me my son after he gave me the, I guess it was an injection, who knows, I was so out of it, um, (laughs) that I was shivering uncontrollably. And so... That un, not very ideal situation, then, you know, I'm at home with my son and I start feeling, um, feeling like I can't get comfortable. Like no matter how I shifted or sat or laid down, I was in pain. I didn't know why. And then, uh, you know, a lot of people say, oh, it's motherhood, your first time mom. Like, just rest when the baby rests is always the, like, advice you're given. Um, And so I was trying to do that, trying to take care of myself as well as the baby. But the pain and the fatigue just were not going away, Uh, which was very concerning to me because uh, the pain levels would shift and um, the location of the pain would shift. and to the point where I just couldn't really do things the way that I wanted to do things. So I had to investigate and ask my family doctor and then a rheumatologist and then um, just trying to find answers to what was going on. They did test me for lupus, um, which that that's what the rheumatologist thought initially that I had, but my blood work kind of ruled that out. So um, fibromyalgia is basically um, a, a diagnosis uh, through exclusion <laughs> is what they say. But essentially they rule out all the things that it can't be. And then if they have no clue, they essentially say it's fibromyalgia. <laughs> Not ideal, um, but it gave me, at least gave me a sense of, okay, this is kind of what it is. And there are other people who kind of fit this. So like, it helped me start thinking about myself, my uh, newly disabled, newly disabled body, um, and thinking about how it not only impacts my my scholarship and how I go about doing doing things but also just generally my life generally like I need to I started becoming more intentional um because of my energy levels you know the spoonies say you know you only have so many spoons of energy um and so it's has made me 
prioritize things differently now um, has made me, well, I was critical before, but has made me even more critical about um, higher education and um, the social cultural context of STEM, um, which is science, technology, engineering, and math. Um, and also just thinking about uh, more recently mothering, like how does my disability impact how I mother my my children and and also um, build relationships with others. Um, so that's that's a little bit of my disability story. Um, but to be honest, I think my story begins more with my mom, my observations of her. Um, because right now she's legally blind, but she has retinitis pigmentosa. And so uh, being the youngest of three girls, um, I saw a little bit more of my mom's processing of that because she she started losing her eyesight. And we didn't know at the time, but reflecting back, there were signs um, she started losing her eyesight in her early 40s, which is where I am, the age I am now. Um, and <clears throat> seeing her navigate that, also struggle with that because of the Latino community and the messages that she received as a child um, about being disabled. So, um, I guess I've always been thinking about disability, but I haven't really got serious about it until it was me, essentially, um, impacting me more specifically. I'm thinking of two things, Lisette, as I listen to you. One is a, a realization that is just dawning on me um, as you talk about fibromyalgia. It, it really feeds into a neurodivergent experience. Um, and a lot of neurodivergent folks prefer not to use the word um, disabled to, to refer to their experiences. Uh, so the other thinking, the other uh, area of thinking that jumps to my mind is this idea of, of pan-disability. Pablo and I have written um, a couple of articles around this idea of pan-disability, trying to find Cross disability ways to connect um, across different types of disability experiences, and mm -hmm. it's interesting how you, as a third child, uh, a third girl with your mother and your own mothering, you're you're sort of bridging these different types of disability experiences. So there is something about pan disability that surrounds your two counter stories. Uh, which is a single counter story, your own life, um, sort of the, the whole life process and the, the flow of those connections um, amazes me and, and corroborates the need to think more of, of relational processes that connect us all disabled folks as opposed to having these um, diagnostic things that separate us and often make us, um, you know, be be divided. Even within a disability structure, I was um, outside of the microphone. We were talking about these these blind disability organizations that are that are competing for resources and how strategically they collide uh, and that sort of thing. So it's it's a. I think your story is is powerful in highlighting that sort of relationality and those kinds of dynamics the the fluidity of everything thank you i'm i'm happy you said that alexis um i've actually been sitting with that more that was more of a new realization for me as well um and ironically came from two separate kind of invitations to to write book chapters. So one book chapter, the focus was on discrete mothering. It's going to be an edited book, um, I think, um, or edited book or 
special issue of something. Um, but each one of us had a different take on what does it mean to be either looking through the disability, critical disability, looking at discrit and thinking about what does it mean to use discrit as a disabled mother, um, but also, or some folks were, um, some of my colleagues were thinking about it in terms of um, teaching children in their own classrooms and relating that back to discrete mothering. So I had that thinking happening. And then another <laughs> book chapter invitation happened um, that was more focused on disability and family. And um, they had asked me to kind of speak on being Latina and um, <clears throat> the perceptions of disability and in the Latino community. And then I started thinking about and how it sh shaped my activism. And so I started thinking about my mom. <laughs> and then, so I called um, the book chapter, Learning from the Couch Cushion, um, because sadly a lot of my mom, time that my mom spends as a blind Latina is sitting on the couch. Both of those stories have kind of come together and have made like this full circle reflection on um, Latinidad and disability and mothering. And so it's something that I'm still kind of sitting with. I'm going to let Paulo speak, but I, I, I want to, for, for our audience, spell out this discrete idea. It, it's the framework combines uh, disability studies and uh, critical race theory. Um, some of our episodes dive into some of these issues, but I, I love the fact that somebody is thinking of writing about discrete mothering because it, it, it takes the framework outside the classroom. And uh, I think, um, it's an important thing that needs to happen within discrete. It's it's been very much a classroom yes. related kind of thing, and and talking about discrete mothering and uh, connecting it to other dimensions outside the schooling set of dynamics to me seems seems quite indispensable to to make the framework um, stronger and and um, more expansive. Um, so I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing that chapter when it comes out. So let me know. Yeah, I'll, I'll definitely share it. <laughs> yeah, same here. I, I think you all presented at the American Educational Research Association, correct? On, did, on did. this topic of this crypt mothering. Uh, so yeah, I heard some really great reviews from those who attended <laughs> that session. So it, the the book chapter is definitely going to be awesome for folks to to read more about uh, those experiences. I was also thinking uh, when you were sharing your stories about the birth experiences you had, uh, it, it sounded very, very similar to what my partner, my then partner went through. And uh, she was also a person of color, uh, East Asian. The feeling was that, and I think what you were saying was this idea that the doctors were very like dismissive, like the like asking if it hurts, and you were like, "Yeah, it hurts a lot." And, and I think that's what uh, my my former spouse said too. Is like it hurts like hell, but then like that was it. Like they, they didn't care. Like after that, they just like, "Oh yeah, yeah." <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll just go through it. Like uh, so, so it just made me think also about like birth complications of women of color. Yeah, maybe the pains are different when they're women of color versus white women. That that would be an interesting exploration, right? Yeah, I mean, we we know that uh, that doctors have this idea that black people they have a higher tolerance of pain. I mean, that's well like established in the medical field that you know doctors have for some reason think that they that black people are are beyond human because they can tolerate so much pain. Um, so I, I'm wondering too about how, how it extends to 
like women of color and birth. You know, I don't have the statistics, but it seems like uh, some of those things could could be happening as well. Yeah, I know. I know that was definitely something on my mind <laughs> during that whole process. Um, just knowing, especially in the Black community, how many women have died given birth um, because they were ignored um, because of the ridiculous assumptions that some doctors have about um, the tolerant pain tolerance of Black people. Um, and I, I do think that's something that more work needs to be done around. Um, I have been through one of my projects at Turk, um, and Turk is a math and science nonprofit organization, research organization located in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And so um, one of the grant projects that I'm on, I have the honor of being able to talk to uh, Native peoples um, at the undergraduate, graduate, and professional levels in STEM and hearing their stories. Um, and so one of them is this fabulous and brilliant <laughs> undergraduate. Um, actually, she just graduated, so not anymore. Um, but now she's in a medical program. But um, she started thinking about these issues with maternity and um, morbidity uh, during childbirth um, for Native communities. And so because of that, um, because of her interest and experiences as a Native person, um, plus people kind of supporting her dreams of doing this kind of research. She's been researching these things in the Native community and um, kind of sharing with people um, how Native women are also um, experiencing really harsh childbirth situations. And we don't have, um, there tends to be, especially with the Native, Native populations, there tends to be the small end problem where, you know, small sample size, then they're like, eh, you know, it won't matter. Um, <laughs> that's a whole nother <laughs> STEM issue, <laughs> culture issue um, that people should think about. But um, it's not always about the number, the the sample size. Um, it's, um, I'm trying to remember who said this, but um, there was someone who, was speaking at a conference who said uh, data bleeds and just, you know, remembering that, you know, you're working with real people. Um, it's not just a sample size. Yeah, I've been reading this work by a South African thinker uh, called Necropolis talking about these these issues in a philosophical way. And it's um really striking how coloniality in, in its different forms and um, even the digital era are, are filled with these yeah data bleeds or whatever dimensions that are coloring data and treating people differently just because of the color um, of their, their, their skins. No, it's, it's interesting because you are really connected to a lot of very interesting different communities and doing works with organizations that are connected to different sub-communities. Um, I am particularly very interested in asking you about another organization that you um, were a founding member in 2015, uh, around that same time that your story um, took place. It, it's called uh, Coalición Nacional, uh, of Latins, uh, the, the Latins con discapacidades in Chicago, and and I wanna I wanna ask you um, about the trajectory. What what you think has changed in the these eight years since 2015, when NCLD was found uh, founded, and and how how you see sort of that evolution now, especially because you know some of these. Latin folks are also American Indian with very different experiences and, and the types of coloniality 
they face are are different. They are less grounded on issues of sovereignty like uh, the American Indian tribes do. Mm -hmm. And of course, the infrastructures are set up differently so that healthcare and everything is experienced differently. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I just want to throw that that at you, which is uh, another way to blend all these different um, connecting points that that you um, are are experiencing yourself. Yeah, definitely. Um, going going back to my um, diagnosis in 2015, um, as an academic, one of the ways in which I was processing things was through writing. So I had written a blog post about my experience as a disabled Latina. And through there, I was contacted with um, Catherine Perez and Michelle Garcia, um, who were, they were trying to collect a, a nice number of um, other folks who were Latina or Latino and disabled. Because uh, they were thinking of creating a community, a coalition of folks that can push um, some issues and make it make our numbers visible or more apparent. Since a lot of us um, were processing our own identities alone, um, and there hasn't been like more social model conversation around disability in Latino communities. I think there's variation certainly within the Latino communities in terms of their understandings of disability, um, especially in the United States, their understanding of the rights that they could leverage or use, especially immigrant populations may not even know that those things exist. Um, <clears throat> so, we were thinking about all of that, thinking about our own journeys. And so we created uh, the National Coalition of Latinxes with Disabilities. We had our first conference in 2017, I think. Since then, I mean, a lot of us have gone on to do other things. So, for example, Catherine Perez, who was the original driving force, I would say, um, she's at the Colho Center um, in California. A lot of us were grad students or or community organizers, and we we were trying to not only educate the Latino communities in the United States about what their rights were, but also sharing with them that there's a different different way of thinking about disability beyond the medical model um, and that we wanted to make things better for disabled Latinos and to be um, intentional around thinking about Latinos in an intersectional way rather than just saying, you, you know, just focusing on the disability or just focusing on the Latinidad. Um, in terms of What's shifted over the past eight years, um, I would say in terms of topics, I think there are more mainstream disability or mainstream, <laughs> using quote, air quotes, mainstream disability organizations um, that have become more interested in intersectionality as it pertains to Latinos and disability. Um, growing number of requests about folks who can speak to that. But I do think progress is slow. So I wish I could say that there was something specific that I'm like, yeah, it's been awesome. Um, but I think it's like a growing awareness um, and curiosity about disability and the Latino community. Um, I have been noticing that there's more, there seems to be more representation in terms of disabled Latinos, um, certain certain Latino stars coming out and saying, hey, I have this, I'm neurodivergent, um, 
or I have, you know, this condition. Um, and there, there's so there's been greater identification with disability as well in some ways. But I do think there's a lot that needs to be researched and addressed. Um, we don't have any data. I mean, I haven't been delving into the numbers lately. So um, if I'm incorrect, please share your data with me. Um, but the World Institute on Disability, their first and last report on Latinos with disabilities was 2016. Um, and I haven't seen anything, any other type of report like that since. So I'm curious. <laughs> I'm curious if there's a report out there. I haven't had the time to look for it, but I'd be interested in it. Um, I do know the Urban Institute right now. Um, they will be sharing on their website a policy report that they generated that I actually was a participant in, um, in terms of, so they gathered uh, a bunch of us that were familiar with disability and immigration, kind of ha had us talk about our views in terms of what we're seeing with uh, disabled immigrants and how it impacts their financial well-being. Um, so that included all sorts of things like education, healthcare, employment. Um, and so we just had this long conversation about what is the status. Um, and so those intersections and overlaps of needs have yet to be addressed, but I think there's more people who are thinking about it. So if you're interested in that Urban Institute policy report, it's uh, called Disabled Immigrants Face Intersecting Barriers to Education and Employment. It's by Dulce Gonzalez and Paula Echave. Hi there. While we intend to make our podcast as accessible as possible, we ask those that have the financial means to support us by subscribing as a patron to our podcast for as little as $5 a month. To subscribe, go to our website, disabilityed.podbean.com. By subscribing as a patron, you will help ensure that we can continue to create and share new episodes while supporting other co-conspirators who face financial and health difficulties. For those with financial difficulties, please connect with us about obtaining a free copy of our books and or engaging in additional conversations with us. You can also support the show by hitting the follow button, share this podcast with among your network, and leave us a comment and positive rating. Your support means so much. Going back to the Descript uh, yeah. foundational article, the 2013 one, one thing that I do like about that article is the emphasis on interlocking oppressions. Uh, a lot of people think of intersectionality as just the, the blending of variables, um, but it's, it's not just like that. Uh, for instance, um, in the same way that folks with disabilities are divided uh, and, and the reason why pan-disability is so important, uh, we Latins are also experiencing the divide and conquer through mechanisms like citizenship. Um, you, you are Puerto Rican, that's your ancestry. Um, a lot of, I mean, thousands and thousands of Venezuelans are coming through the border, uh, people from Central America, much more than Mexicans, which used to be the, the trend before. Um, and a lot of these very... Uh, moving targets because the, these are things that are happening as we speak and a lot of the tactics have changed uh, pushing a lot of these immigrants into New York and Chicago and these big areas strategy that wasn't used before so that the undocumented problem was was more of a frontera stuff something that yeah. was experienced at the border but now it's really pushed to the center of politics. And it's it's definitely gonna be very um, important as, as an electoral issue in the next elections. Um, 
how, how do you see that impacting the future? I mean, these this dynamicity, mm-hmm. because the issues of Latinidad involve this divide and conquer, and the issues of disability also divide divide and conquer through these uh, medical diagnoses and all these tricky ways to have you know the interlocking oppressions that we experience in terms of intersectionality are not as easily managed through quantitative articles um like uh, you know not, nothing against the urban institute but that that sort of approach um only gives you the tip of the iceberg when it comes to understanding the the qualitative contours of this this set of issues and i know mm-hmm. you have a better handle on some of those things so i, I if you could oh, comment for sure. our audience a little bit of that yeah sure um i mean i completely agree as a quant person turned qual person <laughs> um I do think there's a lot more um, interviews and observations that, and just critical analyses that need to be done generally. Um, in terms of what I'm seeing in the future, as much as I see awareness picking up, I also think that there are some people, like like you said, there will be some people who will use divide and conquer. So what I'm starting to witness is focuses shifting to disability um, rather than focusing on race, but still not a not the intersection. Um, I'm also seeing connecting to STEM in particular, but I guess you, it could be with employment generally. We know that there's going to be some careers, um, STEM employment in particular. Um, that are going to increase and there will be a need there. And unfortunately, I see a lot of our disabled people of color not being able to benefit from that due to the the many kinds of barriers that that impact their progress through the whole STEM journey from even before they decide to be scientists or want to pursue science, there's already stuff that is keeping them from that type of um, that type of career, but also financial stability. Because we all because STEM jobs tend to be higher paying. I think there's going to be more gaps between the haves and the have-nots in the future um, in every sector. Um, in my opinion, um, from education to employment to housing to um, healthcare. And then um, you add uh, undocumented issues. Um, some states that layer on uh, yeah. allow, yeah, they allow undocumented um, people to study in the universities, but they, once they are out, they don't have a way to use that to pursue yeah. a career, even if they do a STEM career, if they were able to um, surmount the obstacles, then they come out with, without a, any real possibility to enter the job market. And debt sometimes, um, depending on oh, where they go. Exactly. <laughs> um, but this STEM stuff, I think it's a great segue to talk about um, Paolo's question, the, the question about the signs of disabilities. Yeah, I, I think you were, of many things you're doing, the signs of disability, spelled S-I-N-E-S, is another great work that you're doing. Uh, I and and I I just wanted to sh- have you share more about that work. And I I do really 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 quickly go back to your point about intersectionality because it really resonated with me quite a bit uh, as coming from a Asian American community, uh, having Asian Chinese American kind of uh, lineage. My parents are immigrants uh, to the United States and, and we grew up in the state of Kansas. Uh, but I always knew that they just growing up, they they were very, very attuned to issues of race, as as I think many of the folks we were part of, like race was a big Part. I mean, there's no question about their understanding of racial issues here in the U.S. 
And I, similar to you, with that, I, I see a big need uh, for that intersection with disability. Because when it comes to disability, at least in, in my experiences with the Asian American, Chinese American community, is very much a, a whole separate thing. Like, it, 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 and I think there's not as much as a, as a, a very keen knowledge of that. I, I, you know, I always just kind of reflect back on my mom, as, as you talked about, as, as someone who influenced your work quite a bit. And, and my mom, I, you know, she, in in terms of U.S. education, you know, you wouldn't say she went really high, whatever that means. I mean, she, I think, just had a pretty, uh, I think, up to elementary school, but but otherwise, I mean, she she knew race issues and she would talk to me about it and, and you know when i was young i, I was like yeah, yeah whatever mom but now like it, it makes a lot of sense it's like oh i wish i would have listened more to you and and had those conversations more deep conversations and now we have the conversation now but but now uh you know having this intersectional approach i think uh also in the asian american community i think that's that's something that's uh also very important so i just wanted to uh, make that quick statement there but uh but i do want to have you share more about the signs of disability the the, the great work that you were doing i think and and you, you you talk about some of what you were doing that work with as well oh well thank you paulo i mean uh signs of disability uh <laughs> i'll take credit for the the sad pun um i had said so um it's a it's a project that came out of curiosity and friendship with um Daniel Reinholds from San Diego State um we had we had been chatting and talking about counter narratives and and stem and um we started just brainstorming he was like what if we just I don't know, make a website. And I said, I'd be down for that. Like, let's, let's do it. Um, and he was like, what do you think? Do you think people would like send us stuff? Like, would it be? So we were just brainstorming, thinking about what we, what can we do to get more? And, and we focused on mathematics because that's um, Dan Daniel's background is, is math education um, and statistics. Um, but <clears throat> given um, given both our work in STEM and thinking about just the experiences that we've either heard or witnessed, um, saying, you know, um, we should really collect these stories, not only to, for like historical purposes, but in particular to get younger scientists um give them stories that they could potentially see themselves in and also to be able to challenge ableism in stem so we wanted to get people to start to think about disability justice in math education um thinking about those counter stories and just dreaming about what would and, and Paolo and of course knows this and Catherine uh we've just been thinking about you know how can we build a community of disabled well in our case for the website disabled mathematicians and math educators but essentially saying you know making making sure that they see themselves as as mathematicians as well, and to counter the assumptions that people have about mathematics and disability. I think with math, most people think it's an inherent thing that you're just good at. And, you know, of course, when they, when you think dis, most people think, oh, if you're disabled, especially intellectually disabled, there's no way you could be able to be a mathematician or, you know, those really um, deficit-oriented um, views of who should be a mathematician or how to do math. Um, that's another whole other philosophical <laughs> thing. Um, 
but essentially our website um, is meant to begin to share the stories, kind of push um, mathematics, math education, curriculum, pedagogy, um, but also we're hoping to create a counter space. We're hoping to start bringing the folks who have been so generous with sharing their stories with us um, together to try to think about how can we begin to shift math education? What are some, some actions that we as a collective group can start to do to kind of um, push people to think about math and math education in a different way? So that's kind of like what we're working on now in terms of the website is um, thinking about how we can push push the conversation off the website <laughs> and be more more relational um, and um, engaged with one another. Um, I would say in terms of main achievements. Um, we have the website, <laughs> which thanks to Daniel, um, Daniel had some funds from his, from his startup uh, when he started at San Diego. So well, that's um, the website is up. Um, and what I find interesting and exciting in some ways is we haven't been up that long, um, but we've been getting inquiries. Um, either people who are interested in submitting their own stories or who want to engage in a deeper way. So um, like asking about, oh, are you going to hold a conference or are you going to like, I think there is a need out there um, and a community of people who are looking to, to change um, math education for the better. So I think in terms of, I guess, our role, like I said, uh, Daniel and I started this basically because we wanted to. <laughs> it was, no one told us we had to do it. Um, no one, um, no one, fun, like this isn't funded by any one organization like it's very much just me and Daniel <laughs> and um we're just slowly collecting and sharing the stories and um making sure that we're staying in touch with the people who have reached out to us and for those who are engaging with the podcast we're going to have the link to that website uh if you want to connect with Lisette or or, or Daniel uh I do want to ask a follow-up question, Lisette, because mm -hmm. I, I imagine that there are going to be educators, there are going to be family members who are listening to the podcast, uh, engaging with the podcast, and, and wondering, like, when you say, like, ableism in STEM education, like, what do you mean by that? Oh, sure. Oh, my God, ableism. Um, <laughs> ableism is everywhere. Um, when I... When I think about ableism in STEM education, it extends from things as obvious as your countertops are too high <laughs> or for people to reach things or, you know, you don't have enough space to move around a lab or a classroom, if, especially if you have a mobility aid. But I also think, I mean, those are very obvious physical things, but I also think ableism in STEM are a lot of it is the assumptions are the assumptions behind whether a person can or can't do something. Um, so a lot of the ways I see it play out is people not being approached for opportunities um, in STEM just because they have a particular impairment. Um, like, oh, well, we're not going to tell them about this particular research experience because, you know, it involves 
um, observe, you know, observations of animals, or it involves uh, working with glassware and they're, they have a, they're neurodivergent and, you know, have hard time controlling their arms. There's like, no, so like there's already, even before the person is there in the space, there are already all these thoughts about what this person is capable of. And so with, like I said, with mathematics, a lot of it has to do with um, these assumptions about mathematics being a, you have to have a, some kind of inherent gift, something that you were born with that just makes you amazing with numbers. Um, I think there's people also forget that there's different kinds of math. Um, so just because you can't do one math, one type of math doesn't mean you can't do another type. But also um, the ways in which people derive answers, um, I think is something also that is questioned usually, um, or at least when I was growing up, they, they're doing some interesting stuff now that I'm like, wow, I wish I learned math this way. <laughs> it would have been so much easier. Like my son now, he's 10 and he's already doing multiplication and like these and and basic algebra and I'm like I was not there at, at that age because that <laughs> but anyways um I think there's a lot of possibility within the disability community in terms of how we approach things and process things that I think STEM is just missing out on um, because of these ridiculous assumptions, because of our socialization with how science is supposed to be done. There's this whole, you know, assumption behind how you do science. Um, when the reality, no one really does science, how we're supposedly that scientific method, like <laughs> no one really go follows that by the book to do what they have to do. Uh, uh, so long-winded <laughs> is that ableism is essentially embedded in in a lot of STEM and um, and STEM education approaches. I feel like we're only scratching the surface with a lot of these things. We we could probably do <laughs> one um, episode for each of the topics we've been touching with you. Um, <laughs> But I, I want to make sure we we talk a little bit also about your work with informal science and equity issues um, with and by people with disabilities, um, because that that's another area. I mean, we typically think of exclusion uh, in STEM issues uh, at the classroom level, and we uh, when it comes to activism, we usually don't jump into trying to deal with issues of informal science uh, or citizen science or those kinds of things that are outside the classroom that allow for popular education types of things that would connect people to STEM uh, mm -hmm. even if they don't have a formal uh, instructional connection. And I think that's a very important aspect of how folks with disabilities would be excluded uh, and also closing the door or any backdoor mechanisms for them to to penetrate the stem the stem world as well so if you could talk a little bit about that of course um so my current adventure is with um the revised center so um my background has our revised center logo, which is a little green plant with roots in the ground. And the roots are little nodes of different colors, kind of related to like connecting the different sectors of STEM. The plant is growing and there's talk bubbles uh, right at the top. So we wanted to emphasize the need for relationship building and engagement with one another. Um, and it also, the plant forms the V in the word revise. Um, and the center name, <laughs> the center name was controversial, and that could be another story uh, to share. But 
um, when we submitted our proposal, and this is an NSF-funded collaborative grant, um, it's a cooperative agreement with NSF. So essentially, how that's different from a, a typical NSF grant is that we're actually working in tandem with NSF. So they uh, they definitely have their thoughts about things that we do and share. Um, it's always a negotiation. Um, but luckily we have program officers that are very kind. Uh, but the Revised Center stands for Reimagining Equity and Values in Informal STEM Education. And we chose Revised very intentionally because um, we felt that we were still working within a system that was not originally built for us. And at most, we wouldn't be able to transform it per se, um, but we could revise some of the things that are happening in the system. Um, so we're in our second year of funding. And from the very beginning, um, from since the proposal phase, my team has essentially said, we are centering race and disability. Um, so in everything we do, we think about um, discrete, disability justice, um, and we were very open with NSF about that. Um, luckily, the Advancing Informal STEM Learning, or ASL program, has been trying to shift the informal science field for the past few years. And so they were looking for folks, luckily, um, that are wanting to push the conversation in a different direction. Um, as some folks listening may know, NSF has been focused on broadening participation. And a lot of that has re a lot of that has resulted in good work and some increases in representation, but not to the extent where we're seeing the same percentage of people in science as we see in the community at large. Just so, real quick, let's just jump yeah, sure. in. And NSF is to to those that might not be familiar with NSF, can you say a little bit more about that organization? Sure. <laughs> it's it's full of acronyms. Um, National Science Foundation. So the National Science Foundation is a federal um, organization charged with providing funds to um, science uh, innovations and. Um, anything essentially that they see could be of benefit to science and society as a whole and economic prosperity uh, for the nation. Um, <clears throat> so our charge as a center through the ASL program is not just to broaden participation, but to actually get uh, the field, um, researchers and practitioners dedicated to informal STEM learning to get them to not just think about equity, but to embed equity in everything that they do. So if you look at the new ASL uh, solicitation from this past year, essentially they'll be looking for not just you saying equity, equity, equity throughout your proposal, um, <laughs> but they're gonna be looking for substance. So before you could get away with writing a project um, and submitting it to NSF and, and with a, oh yeah, I'm going to share my results with this community, check broadening participation done. <laughs> but now it's to the point where they want to see, like, if you say you're going to be centering race and disability, then you better have a disabled person of color 
as a collaboration and and not just collaborate, but they need to have a meaningful position in your project. Um, if you're going to be paying stipends or if you're going to be asking community disability communities, um, especially disabled people of color, to participate in things, then how are you making sure that's in your budget? Not saying, not saying, oh, come to my thing and extracting data from them and not properly um, paying them back for their effort. Um, so our charge, which is really great, is to just keep pushing that, <laughs> essentially, um, keep kind of challenging folks to think about how do we support folks who are, have been doing the work, have been doing the equity work, um, how can we strengthen that, but, but while also bringing other folks on board who may be a little more hesitant. So a lot of what we do is we try to, we've been trying to model um, what we think pe more people should be doing. So I actually wrote, for example, in terms of disability justice um, and thinking about disability in informal STEM, I wrote a blog post that's on our website on informalscience.org where I talk about the very first webinar that we had. And the blog post is called, It Begins With Us, Modeling an Accessible Webinar. And essentially I describe all all the things we considered and our approach to the webinar and and things that of course could be improved. My team is very has been very good about being transparent with e not just with each other, but we want to be transparent with the field. So in this next year, we're going to be sharing more of our approach to things and resources and um, also hearing from folks in the field and having them either give um, webinars or work virtual workshops um, so that people are connecting some of that theory that they think, oh, it's just up here in the air. <laughs> <laughs> or in the head, but connect trying to connect the dots from the theory to the practice um, and saying, you know, we believe in disability justice. These are the things that we have done that are related to that theory to try to show people how exactly everything ties together and the importance of that. Yeah, as I said, I mean, we, we could definitely go very deep into a lot of these um, components um but we're we're pretty much teasing out the audience so they um follow up with you guys um to learn some more yeah i think we also want to be very respectful of your time uh we schedule an hour and i think we're we're getting over that hour uh but there's so much awesome things that you're doing i i do, all, all of the links we'll be sharing on our podcast uh, notes page and I also want to really quickly just say how awesome the science for the people uh, work that you're doing is as well I, this is my first time uh, going through that website and I was just amazed oh, and, and I want to share that with folks engaging in the podcast oh, that's I, another awesome website to yeah well we have We've had a, an amazing SciComm illustrator, um, Matteo Farinella. Um, he's amazing. So a lot of a lot of the visually appealing things is him. <laughs> but um, yeah, Science for the People is amazing, um, and I give them all the all the credit. Um, it's been a joy to work with them. I wish I could work, work more with them, but with the Revised Center now. So I 
I keep tabs on them though. <laughs> yeah, I, I I can't wait to dive into some of the content. I mean, the, some of the content there. I haven't gotten into it, but oh just the, the headings. Totally they're just lost. yeah, especially the archive. Have you seen the archive yet? Not yet. Okay. <laughs> There's a lot, a lot we of awesome things. Too. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, and for folks engaging in the podcast, uh, that's another great thing that the awesome Lissette is doing. And and so thank you, Lissette, so much for taking time of your day to join us, to have this wonderful conversation. And we just want to close out uh, by having you share anything that, you know, how people can connect with you if they want to connect with you and, and where they can find learn more about the things that you're doing. Oh, my goodness. Um, so I don't think I'm too hard to find. Um I'm on I'm I'm holding on to X aka Twitter um just <laughs> just because the disability I was home for the disability community for so long and I know folks are jumping ship but I'm still on there um that's Lisa E Torres 3 um I'm also more active on LinkedIn now um and you could just search for my full name Lisa Torres Gerald um if you want to email me specifically about the signs of disability, uh, my email is lisette, L-I-S-E-T-T-E, at signsofdisability.com. And then anything else, <laughs> you could use my Turk, Turk email address, which is lisette underscore Torres at turk.edu. And I'm sure Paolo will make sure those all those things are <laughs> on there. I will for sure. And so thank you so I'll, much, Set. Yeah, it, it's been <laughs> such a wonderful conversation. Thank you, Alexis, as well. As always, as, as we close out, we're hoping for you all the best and for our audience members the best as well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Bye-bye. so much for engaging with the DES podcast. We post new episodes every few weeks. The DES podcast is made possible and sustainable in solidarity with you and those who generously volunteer their time to converse with us. We hope you join us on our next episode.